Massive progression from a comp company of a few hundred to a couple thousand. And it really started getting me thinking about, you know, what was next for me? I really enjoyed that experience that really top-notch people that were there. But space was something that was kind of inaccessible for all of us, right? And I wanted to focus a little bit more on something terrestrial and went to a small company in Ohio doing sustainable power generation. So taking anything that was hot, making more power from it, and really learned from there. And then the opportunity came. I met a guy I used to work with. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Virgin Hyperloop CEO and co-founder, Josh Geigel. Josh, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Jess. So I think there's a lot of people who are going to know exactly what we talk about when we say the Virgin Hyperloop, but for the few that don't, can you give people kind of a, a mental representation of, of what this is for the people listening on their way to work right now? <laughs> no worries. So this is a brand new form of transportation. I like to think it's really the first new form of mass transportation in over 100 years, really, since the, the aircraft. And so what we have is a vehicle that holds about 25 to 30 passengers, or what we call a pod. And it sits inside of a tube and allows us to go at a very high speed because inside this tube, we take most but not all of the air out. It'd be like flying at about 200,000 feet of altitude. Um, which is about five times higher than a normal aircraft. And that allows us to go these speeds for a fraction of the energy consumption. And so then we've used our own, say our own homemade maglev system and propulsion system that we've worked on over the last couple of years. And this is nothing that's been out there for a while. This is brand new as of a couple of years ago. And our own battery powered pods. So this idea of a fully electric vehicle, it goes at a high speed takes you directly to your destination. It doesn't stop at every place along the way. And it's doing that in an environmentally sustainable and responsible way. Plus, it gets to be a new form of transportation and something that's never existed. So as an engineer, that's about as exciting as it can be. Well, uh, can, you, can you give people just a little bit of your background and SpaceX and, and how you got to this, to this exalted role? <laughs> so I grew up as a son of two engineers. So my mom is a reactor engineer at a nuclear power plant and my dad is an electrical engineer. And so there's always a degree of uh, dorkiness growing up, right? So you're learning how to do things in the garage or you're going to these different areas on vacation. And then I ended up marrying an engineer. My sister turned out to be an engineer. Her husband turned out to be an engineer. And so, so it was, I'll say, in the, in the cards since the beginning. But the, the goal really coming out of, I'll say undergrad was to be, just to kind of do something that was was novel or something that had never really been been done before. And I went to grad school at, at Stanford and got to meet a really interesting group of people that were some of the smartest people I've ever met and just really, really driven individuals. And that was a really exciting spot. And I thought I wanted to be a professor. And then I ended up meeting another similar group of people at SpaceX and actually told my professor that there's nothing I'd rather do less than what you described for my PhD on this planet than, than that. So ended up going to work at SpaceX back in 2008 when 
really it was just a small company and they hadn't had a successful rocket flight yet and spent about three and a half, four years there. And by the time we or time I left, we had been docking with the International Space Station. So it's kind of a massive progression from a comp company of a few hundred to a couple thousand. And it really started to get me thinking about, you know, what was next for me? I really enjoyed that experience that really top-notch people that were there. But space was something that was kind of inaccessible for all of us, right? And I wanted to focus a little bit more on something terrestrial and went to a small company in Ohio doing sustainable power generation. So taking anything that was hot, making more power from it and really learn from there. And then the opportunity came. I met a guy I used to work with and a new venture capitalist. And then in 2014, quit my job, reported to a garage and the journey for Hyperloop began. So cool. And then at what point did it become Virgin Hyperloop? About three, about three years after we started. So we had been doing some work. So we're based in Los Angeles. We have a test site in Las Vegas, about 30 minutes north of the Strip. And I had done a brief stint after that company in Ohio called Equigen Power Systems at what was now the Virgin Orbit. And so I was there for just a couple of months before I quit to start this. And at the time, you know, Richard and, and company were like, where are you going? And I said, well, I can't tell you. Don't worry, it's not a space company. <laughs> but uh, a few years later, when we were looking for a new round of investment, we started reaching out to them and they were really excited. So Richard and the Virgin team came back out in the summer of 2017 and became an investor thereafter. So it's kind of a really interesting story. Yeah. You know, Richard Branson's such an inspirational character to so many entrepreneurs and marketers and people from a few different genres. What What's your experience been like to, to not just experience him through through YouTube or books like me? <laughs> He's quite a character. I, I really enjoy the time I get to, to talk with him. He's obviously seen and done so much in his career. But one of the, probably one of the most profound moments I've had with him was we were waiting to meet another investor. And we were sitting in this really kind of podunk, as my grandma would say, hotel or actually motel outside of Mojave. This is a couple of years ago. And I met him for like a breakfast in like the continental breakfast lounge of this motel, right? It's, it's exactly what you would think it would look like. And so there I am talking with Richard about the future of transportation, but he's always been like a really he's had his eye on something that's a little bit different than I had as an engineer. So as an engineer, you're always thinking about how to make things work, how to make things, you know, exciting and cool and push the envelope. But Richard's always been about how do you create an experience that somebody would really enjoy and somebody that they would really love. And so this kind of the juxtaposition between two, but the marrying of the two is like technology can make experience, you know, beyond your wildest dreams. I mean, look at his little space trip he did, you know, a couple of months ago. And that I think offered a new insight to me. And so sitting in that breakfast lounge, really talking about what about a passenger experience speaks to him and what speaks to me and helping craft our own narrative from there was something I found just, you know, the, the environment was kind of surreal, but also the conversation about how to make people excited about a new form of transportation was something that I'd never really thought of, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, my guess is, I mean, besides just being an inspirational guy and, and so knowledgeable and connected, that his years specifically in the rail business in the UK seemed like they would apply quite well. Oh, yeah. And so one of the things that Virgin has been able to do, you know, from airlines to rail to your spaceships, they have a lot of operational experience and data 
about how to make systems work. And so him and team have been really helpful. And this is how we think a Hyperloop system is going to work. We walk them through it and they're like, okay, well, here's some of the challenges with that. Oh, but I didn't know your system could do this. What if you did this? And that kind of synergistic view of people who've actually been through it and done it versus us who are creating it right now. It's a really, I'll say an exciting kind of dynamic of, you know, you don't have to recreate the things you don't like. You can reimagine the things that you could never imagine, but you could also just make things so much more seamless because you're not encumbered by all the same constraints that they had. And, you know, part of that virgin DNA that, that Richard has instilled is there's always this curiosity, this this drive to like make something, understand something a bit different. So they they came in and they were uh, seamless, I'll say, in their integration with the way we were able to work. Yeah, that's fun. I think that, you know, this show has a lot of, we have a lot of entrepreneurs listening. We have a lot of investment fund managers. And I think that we all read the business press and most of us like have these, have these like fantasies of like, what if I could come up with something like amazingly revolutionary that's like the Steve Jobs dent in the universe, like something not incrementally better. I've convinced myself as a big deal, but something like gen- that's genuinely a big deal. Um, so I'm, I'm interested, you know, both for what you observed at SpaceX and what you've co-created here. How is the experience similar or different than just other forms of entrepreneurship in your observation? That's a great one. I, I think SpaceX was definitely different because from the moment I started there, and the way I like to say it is everybody had seen a rocket go up. No one had ever seen one come down. And... That thought of the power of like, hey, if if when Columbus came over, you had to throw away the ship, or if every time you flew across the country, you had to throw away the plane, that there's just a, it's an odd way of, of thinking about travel. And so the thought of doing something that was, I'll say, seen by everything every day, driving the cost down, and then just pushing it a tiny bit further, which was making the, the rockets land, you know, that was, I think... One way to kind of do innovations, obviously the the, the, the jobs way of, of doing innovations as well, which is a, you know, see a couple of disparate pieces of technology, put them together into something new, you know, like a phone, a camera and, you know, a, a talking device or whatever you wanted to, to call it. But, but for Hyperloop, it was actually that same view of, of what SpaceX did, which was you have to show people that you can do it, that you're capable of doing something hard. You're doing something hard, doing quick. So that same spirit of like, let's go do something really hard, really fast. That is there and then have these proof points along the way. I think the part that's actually been quite a bit different is, different and exciting, is that prior to what we were able to do, no one had really knew what a Hyperloop was. And yeah, there was a white paper. Elena put out that white paper. That actually looks so different than what we're doing. It was actually one of the biggest drawing things for me, which was, it could be anything, right? It, it doesn't have to have four wheels. It doesn't have to have this. It doesn't have to have that. Like we can completely reimagine it. And that actually was to the extent where we had conversations in the earlier days about, do you even need to show the outside? Most people don't know what the outside of an elevator looks like because you're only on ever on the inside of it. And so, but there was this, this sense of expectation, right? That if you're going to get into some new mode of transportation, people want to know what it looks like, right? There's this, oh, speed has this very testosterone-fueled, sleek lines. Sometimes it looks a little dystopian, but 
you have to make it approachable because otherwise people won't get into it. And, and the part that I really enjoyed about it the most is we were having to create the whole system at once, right? So if we were building an airplane, the equivalent of an airplane, we'd be building the airplane, the airport, the air traffic control, and the sky at the same time. So we're able to optimize them all together, but also, you know, with infinite possibilities comes just that infinite possibility. So how do you actually pick one of the ways to go forward? And even at the end of the day, like when we started SpaceX, everybody generically knew what a rocket looked like. And the rockets still look pretty much the same. And there was like an old NASA guy who said something once that was like, why do rockets still look the same as they did in the 60s? Because physics are still the same. But for us, we could kind of control the physics a bit by being inside of this tube and by changing some of the parameters and a, and a couple of those pieces. So we had a chance to reimagine the way that this system would look, would, the way it would work. And so with that, we had like you know infinite design space, tons of workshops, tons of different things to go forward. And I never remembered those type of things at SpaceX where it's like, here's a rocket, here's how it's made, here's the engines, this is what you do. And here it was like, do we use wheels? Do we use maglev? Do we use battery power? Do we use wayside power? Do we use, you know, how many people? Is it 100 people? Is it 20 people? Is it 1,000 people? And so just the, the degree of flexibility, I think, became a really fascinating, I'll say, archa- or, or exercise in architecture studies. And that's something that I've really, really enjoyed is that we've created something now that's truly from the unimagined to reality based on what we've done and what we've come to understand about the problem. You know, one of the questions that's so interesting to me is, you know, from an entrepreneurial perspective, in some ways, you're kind of like, you're kind of hitting the holy grail of like inventing a whole new category, right? Which gives you a big chance to be the category king, okay? So, um, but it comes with that complexity that you're bringing up of like, we got to build the, the airport, the air traffic controller, the airplane, the everything, you know, marketing the flights. I mean, like everything, right? So did you raise right off the bat or did you bootstrap a little bit in the garage or what did those, those first days look like? So the first couple of months were, I I wouldn't really call it bootstrapping because uh, we were just spending money on like computers and trips to go see investors and the like, Uh, but we were really fortunate that we had a lot of people that were really believing that like there was time for something new in, in transportation. And so we had a pretty large seed round about eleven and a half million dollars when it was all said and done. And that allows us to start going. And so we raised an A that took us for a couple of, you know, about half a year towards a year and then really grew to a B round pretty quickly. And one of the things that I'll say came up during that time, which was, very fascinating in hindsight is we could build a system really quickly. And we did that. We could build a system that showed a hyperloop could work, et cetera. But to drive the cost down to a spot where people could buy the system across the world is a completely different animal. And the way I would kind of describe, you know, an aircraft is the Wright brothers had their first flight. Then you had World War One. You had a bunch of tinkering. Then you had World War Two. And now it's like almost 100 years later, you had a 737, right? And you had all of this time to basically get out the kinks, drive the cost down, and same with rail. But those already exist, and we had to come into that same, I'll say, ecosystem with a company that's still not even seven years old yet and be able to compete on a cost level, not to mention our performance is significantly higher, but you had to be able to compete with the cost, reliability, 
that these other systems had had almost more than 100 years to mature. And you had to do that right out of the gate. And so I'll say the things that we really learned was that it's one thing to show something as possible. It's something completely different to make sure it's economically viable. And so what we built in 2015 and 2016 and 2017, we actually couldn't have built what we're building today at that time because the batteries weren't good enough. The, the foundational pieces of technology were not good enough. And we had to go reinvent a number of things. So we pushed really fast. I think we got a little bit ahead of our skis in terms of the expectations we were setting. And then it kind of came back to reality a little bit, sort of that trough of disillusionment, right, with any new type of technology. And we re-architected. We made that really big decision. It's like this path that we're on is going to result in a cliff. We have to make a change. And this was back in 2017. And we started executing on that. And now we're seeing the fruits of that because the electric vehicle world is exploding. Autonomy is exploding. You're seeing sustainable transport exploding. And we made all of those switches about four or five years ago, and now we're seeing all the, the benefits of that. So the thing that I would really, really came out of those first couple of years is wish we had a little bit more time to like get the architecture right on day one. It took us you know, two years to, to get there, but would we have gotten there if we didn't learn the lessons of actually building something? That's a question that I've, I've asked myself quite a bit. And I don't know, there, you learn so much by doing and that's why we just always like to do, always like to build, always like to learn, because ultimately you're not going to ride a PowerPoint. You're going to ride some three-dimensional object. No, oh, such a great answer. You know, we like to cut these interviews in half. So we're kind of we're kind of winding down for the end of part one. But one of my favorite questions to ask, maybe we'll end part one on this, is what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? When I left SpaceX, I was working at this company, Ohio called Ecogen Power Systems. And the CEO there was a guy named Phil Brennan. And I was in this kind of mini CTO role as the head of R&D. And I had to do a presentation. This was really my first real presentation to an outside group. And it didn't go well. And afterwards, the CEO, Phil, he pulled me aside and he said, he also know how to get a rise out of me. He knew that like, I really like to be challenged and people be really blunt with me. And he said, you know, Josh, you might be the smartest person in any room you walk into, but what I saw today was of no value to this company. And if you can't describe what it is you can do or we do to anybody on the face of this earth, whether they're an engineer or not, in five minutes or five hours and make them understand you're no good to me, you're no good to the company. And it was such a, yeah, it was like, don't get me wrong, it's tough love, but I really love tough love more than I love anything else. And it was really eye-opening to me that engineers, you know, try to project intelligence at the expense of understanding just because. And that the end of a conversation, if the person doesn't understand what you're telling them, then you just wasted all of that time. And, and so he encouraged me to like, if I'm sitting on an airplane next to somebody, try to explain what it is we do. And it was like really complicated. And, and then when we started this company, explaining to investors and that kind of proverbial 10,000 hours, right? Like just trying things and failing and trying things that work and being able to become a better communicator. Like that was one of the most, I'll say, profound piece of advice I ever got, I ever received was if you can't explain what it is you do to anybody on the face of the earth, What's the value in what you do? And it's such an easy thought, but it's infectious. And now it's been something that's like, if somebody doesn't understand, I will sit with them and I'll try different ways to make them understand it because it is so important. 
That's such a great answer. I love that answer. Okay, everybody, tune back in for part two. I've got tons more questions for Josh. 